so we started with students in an academic environment because it's knew that was well, the one place that we could mix uh, academia, uh, industry, the government, and just you know really hard problems. We have found that that process of uh, sourcing problems, curating them to the point that they're understandable by other people, and then uh, a heavy dose of discovery in a rigid environment like this actually produces some insights about both problems and potential solutions that are highly, highly valuable to the defense agencies and the intelligence folks. They came into the class working on a problem related to uh, countering illegal commercial fishing. But it turns out that the circumstances that commercial fishing boats will go to sea the fish with the bad weather, cloudy where they can't be tracked and you can't see them, is almost identical to the way North Korean mobile missile launchers work. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and for this episode, I had a chance to talk to Peter Newell. He is a retired colonel who, after leaving the Army, founded a Silicon Valley-based consultancy called BMNT Partners. He was also instrumental in setting up a program called Hacking for Defense, and that's what we're going to hear him talk about today. Now, many listeners will have heard of Hacking for Defense. It has been making news and growing rapidly since it first launched. Essentially, it aims to leverage the unique qualities of academia and private sector startups to solve problems for the government, especially the defense enterprise. The ins and outs of how they do that is fascinating, and the program provides a potentially important model for government to really harness the private sector to provide solutions to some pretty interesting and vexing problems. Before we get to the conversation, as always, just a couple quick notes. First, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Peter Newell. Pete Newell, thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. Hey, thanks, John, for the invite. Yeah, so we're going to talk about something that I think many of our listeners will have heard of, but maybe aren't fully familiar with, and that's called hacking for defense. Um, I wonder if kind of to frame the discussion, if you can sort of, you know, hit the wave tops and give listeners the kind of 30 second pitch about what what hacking for defense is. Well, hacking for defense is um, an academic program that was set up primarily for graduate students that takes uh, emerging government problems, you know, mainly uh, DOD intelligence agencies, and drags them out of the government uh, and places them in a classroom where groups of students can form teams and then pitch the way to get into the class. And essentially what we do is we treat the student teams with the government problems as if they're a startup. The class is based on lean methodology that, that Steve Blank has been, you know, started at Stanford a decade ago that, that really is a flipped classroom. It, it's, it's about getting uh, the students out of the classroom and actually creating hypothesis about a problem and MVPs to help them test the hypothesis. And then and iteratively working through to the point where they've validated they have the right problem and then 
that they have a potential um, pathway to a solution. We have found that that process of uh, sourcing problems, curating them to the point that they're understandable by other people, and then uh, a heavy dose of discovery in a rigid environment like this actually produces some insights about both problems and potential solutions that are highly, highly valuable to the defense agencies and the intelligence um, folks. So why students? If these are problems that, you know, the, the sort of current systems in place are struggling to solve and you want to look outside of those those kind of current structures, why why bring it into the classroom specifically? Actually, it, you know, it's not just students. Um, and, and I tell you that the reason we started with students in an academic environment is it's the one place where you don't have to worry about IP and companies fighting over things or contract laws and, and all those barriers that get in the way of initially just having a really rich conversation about something. And, and it's one of my takeaways from from living in Silicon Valley post-retirement is that the um, the discussion wrapped around problems in this environment is really rich and there are really no barriers to uh, people trading what they know and context and things like that. It's not until you move off for a solution that, that people kind of grab things and say, okay, that's mine. So we started with students in an academic environment because it's new that over the one place that we could mix you know, academia, uh, industry, the government, and just you know, really hard problems. What we found after we first launched the course is that the government folks who were providing problems raised their hands and, and said, hey, wait a minute, uh, we love this course and we love the, all the learning that's going on, but we have a workforce that needs to be able to do this. So, so we, in fact, the Hacking for Defense is run by a nonprofit that was spun out of um, BMNT, which is the company I run. Uh, BMNT, in turn, is focused on doing the same thing at the enterprise level for large organizations. So when people say it's just for students, it, it's really not. It is a great mixing bowl of lots of different people. Can you give? Uh, you said that it that uh, hacking for defense kind of spun out uh, of of BMNT. Can you what's what sort of hacking for defense's origin story? How did it come into being? Was it you know a few people you know having casual conversations and said, hey, we could we could yeah. put this together? And then secondly, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about your background and and what led you sort of uh, to uh, to your involvement with it. Okay, um, so hacking for defense was an accident. <laughs> and like most things, it's, you know, Steve Blank talks about serendipity striking. It, mm. We were asked at BMNT by a, a government client at the time when, you know, the NSA problem had broken. At, at the time, the folks in the Pentagon were working on the long range research and development program document for 2025 for DOD. And part of the mandate for that document was that they got um, non-traditional input into it. By non-traditional, they mean startups and companies that haven't worked in defense before. So in typical fashion, they would come to Silicon Valley and, you know, they would show up at Google or Facebook and LinkedIn and say, you know, we'd, we'd like you to write white papers on what you think, you know, the concept will be in 2025. And, you know, some folks in Silicon Valley thought, yeah, right, I want to pay a an engineer at, at Apple, 1500 bucks an hour to write a white paper to go on a document that's never going to see the light of day. It's just not something they're going to do. But, you know, fortunately, 
so, so there was, I don't want to say pushback, there was just zero participation. The, in the, and when was um, this? Um, 2014-ish. Okay. okay. Yeah, late 2014. The, the problem was that folks in the Pentagon said, you know, because of the NSA thing, and, and some of it, you know, those exist, but they said that, that people in Silicon Valley are anti-defense. Um, and of course, if you ever set foot on, on Stanford's campus, it, you realize that's not true. Um, but but there's just no interaction. So this government client asked us very simply, said, yes, would you prove that there is a way for the DOD to engage people in Silicon Valley about something that's important to DOD? And that's, that's what we were simply asked to do. Um, because of my background, and I'm going to mix the two answers here, uh, sure. I ran the Army's Rapid Equipment Force at the tail end of my Army career between 2010 and 2013. And while I was there, I created an organization that was highly focused on extracting problems from the battlefield, rapidly um, translating them and turning into something that was understandable by more than just the defense industry, but also by commercial industry. And then using what I knew about the problem to actually attract people to help me work on it. We used the exact same premise to solve this problem. We took a supply chain problem in the Pacific because we knew that, that there's a lot of commercial crossover to it. Uh, we gathered a bunch of students from Stanford during spring break and put them on teams and said, your task is twofold. First is you have to take this government problem and rewrite it so that it is um, more of a dual use. So first of all, it's in English, so that people understand it. And then once you've done that, your job is to take this problem around Silicon Valley and recruit three or four people from the Valley to work with you on that problem, to translate it one more time so that it's actually a dual use problem. And by dual use, I mean that the problem exists in DOD, also exists in a commercial arena as well. So that any solution to it it has a potential to actually, you know, be delivered by a real company, not just a company trying to sell things to the DOD. So we used Spring Break. Um, I had, I think, uh, four teams of four graduate students that we borrowed from Stanford. Most of them were former military or active duty military that are here going to school. And, and it, it, it went really well. The exit from this exercise was the students would have to pitch their problem that um, one or two of the managing directors from the venture firms in Silicon Valley, most like in okay. from Sand Hill, really big firms. And, and we kind of graded it this way, is if the managing director of that firm snatches the hand, paper out of your hand and says, this is great, let me email it the 20 of my portfolio companies, you got an A. And if he didn't, you got an F. Um, all of them went really, really well. So we... In the middle of this, I met Steve Black, and, and I, frankly, I, I had no idea who Steve was. And, and you know, for your listeners, um, Steve is essentially the godfather of the Lean Startup movement. Right? So anybody who has anything to do with business would know who he is. But I met Steve in the middle of this, and Steve and I, you know, quickly came to an understanding that what I had been doing at the Rapid Equipping Force in terms of problem curation and, and uh, ecosystem building and problem solving was virtually identical to what he'd been preaching in uh, Lean Startup. Which is? Which essentially is, is 
get out of the it essentially means get out of the office and 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 create hypotheses and validate them uh, over and over and over again before you start writing a business plan. It's all about customer discovery. Um, I didn't do customer discovery. I did beneficiary discovery. Who are the users? Who would actually use a solution? Uh, the the schematics he and I drew were identical. It's just the verbiage was different. But anyway, um, we got to the end of this exercise, and we had to do uh, an outbrief with uh, former SecDef Bill Berry, who, if folks don't know, was the uh, author of the first offset strategy, you know, GPS, smart bombs, et cetera. So we're in a room with Bill Perry, Steve Blank, and, and a couple of other luminaries and the government client. And we essentially have gone through this role and said, here's what we did. Here are the results. We proved that it's possible to get people to work on real things as long as you bring a problem and don't just ask for white papers. And But at the end of it, we said, you know, fortunately, uh, we use Stanford students during spring break. And, you know, Stanford students, like any other, you know, graduate class, they don't have white space in their schedules during the year to do this kind of stuff. So, we, frankly, we were ready to say it, it's not scalable, it's not repeatable, it's too expensive to do. And one of the students in the back of the room raised his hand and said, hey, wait a minute. It, had this been a class at Stanford, I would have taken it. So, it's Steve Blank and, and Bill Perry looked at each other, and the next thing I know is we're, we're launching a class called Hacking for Defense at Stanford not knowing that Stanford would let us teach it, not knowing that the government would give us problems and not knowing that students would be even been interested in taking. Um, and are you getting, if those are, if those are sort of the inputs, are you getting all of those now? I, I would think that maybe the most difficult one to get is a steady supply of those problems for them to work on from the government, just because of, you know, the, 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 the structures are so different that, um, you know, I think that the, that sort of infrastructure problem is, part of uh, you know the difficulty of communicating between private sector and and, and yeah. public sector yeah. which is a big part of just the problem of, of of sort of joining them together to solving problems are you getting those now yeah absolutely so i had, you know i'll tell you we taught the first class i was shocked when we had 14 government agencies bring us 28 problems we did find wow. that the problems were in various um, degrees of um, usable usability uh, and we found we had to spend a lot of time with the problem owners, uh, getting them into a condition that they could actually come into the classroom. You know, it's things that um, can't have requirement data in the problem. You can't have no foreign, can't have classified. There are all kinds of things we had to extract from what the government was giving us. And finally, we get to the point of boiling that problem down to a one-page um, piece of paper. And, after that first class, we learned an incredible amount about the relationship between the problem sponsor and their their ability to serve an expert as an expert to the problem and the size of the Rolodex and their relationship with our higher headquarters and people who had the resources to do something about that problem. Not just because we expected, hey, if they, if the students solve it, you're gonna you're gonna do something, but but because if if the problem owner is passionate about the problem and it's important to the organization, then when the students are trying to get to their 115th interview in less than 10 weeks, there'll be somebody there helping them do it. And I think okay. that's, that's one of the biggest learnings we had. Now, now we've reached a point where I've changed my hats again and say BMNT 
recognized that and built a series of courses uh, around problem curation that now on behalf of uh, MB5, the National uh, Security Innovation Network, mm -hmm. uh, and a number of other agencies, we actually go into the agency and teach them how to do problem curation with their problems. You know, we don't do anything just in classroom base. We actually will go in some place with about 20 people in a room who are showing up with, with problems and will help them either get them sorted out uh, they're actually usable and then sort out whether those problems are best kept at the base, uh, whether they're ideal for the academic platform or if they're really hard things, uh, sometimes they end up in BMNT's pipeline of, of actually working things. But uh, to date, I know you're looking for the, the actual number, we've sourced uh, almost 1,400 problems uh, wow. that are supporting 20, I say 22 universities taught this year. Uh, we sourced 1,400, now here's, here's the, the real artifact that you didn't take it. Only 540 of those were accepted. So 540 actually went through curation, which is the service that BMNT provides to the government agencies that, that helps them ensure that the problems are vetted uh, and scored and, and issued worked out so that they're ready for the classroom or they're ready for their own agencies. And and of those 540, um, you know, are there a substantial number of them where the solutions have been have been sort of developed? The problems have been curated, the solutions have been developed, and then they've been pushed back out to the government, I guess, client, for lack of a better term. Uh, I think if you if you look at um, innovation as a pipeline. It's got five steps to it, and I come back and I'll show you. I'll give you the numbers in a sec. It starts with sourcing, which, which is usually is finding the problems and the people and things that are out there. Then you go to curation, which is where you really put it under a pressure cooker and make sure the things are really valid. And, and you only want valid things entering discovery, which is the next step. We used hacking for defense um, academic classes as a means of doing discovery. From the classes, you then go to incubation, which is where you talk about um, potential solutions or ideas or things in NASA teams. There aren't really big companies yet, but they have to go someplace and, and kind of turn into something. And then the final stage is that transition off the program or record to a client or something else. If that's the pipeline, it actually creates a funnel. And I'll walk you through the numbers. Uh, if we source 1,391 uh, problems, 540 of them made it through curation. 122 of those made it into the classroom last year. Of the 122 that went into the classroom, 28 entities came out the other end and into um, some form of incubation. And by that, I mean either they started a company or the government asked the student team to come back in and work with them or the students kept working on the project. There's, there's some activity happened outside the classroom that continued the project. Um, and so far, we've had nine new companies started that are doing something under contract with the government of some kind. And that, that's just a snapshot today. It's kind of a wow. moving pipeline. But you can see how the funnel works. That part of what, what we, we at BMNT spent a lot of time helping the government enterprise clients understand is if, if you want nine new things a year, 
you have to go all the way to the other end of the pipeline and look at the size of the funnel that you're using to generate new ideas and people in tech. And what I find in most cases is the what's coming into the funnel is inadequate to support what they're trying to get out the other end. There's not enough mass. So can you um, can you provide kind of a couple of examples of what like what what is of those of those nine say can you provide a couple of examples of what the problems were to kind of give listeners maybe sort of a left and right limit of of what hacking for defense is is sort of capable of? Sure. Um, so the what I would say is the biggest most successful one is a company called Capella Space. Um, Capella Team Capella was in the first hacking for defense class we started at Stanford. Um, and they came into the class working on a problem related to uh, countering illegal commercial fishing, which is a major economic issue around the world, but it's particularly a problem in the South China Sea. So, so there are lots of reasons that that's a problem and that the people would be interested in that. Right? But it turns out that the circumstances that commercial fishing boats will go to see the fish with the bad weather, cloudy, where they can't be tracked and you can't see them, is almost identical to the way North Korean mobile missile launchers work. Hmm. So the classic dual use problem, you solve one, you're actually helping to work on the other without actually connecting the two together. Um, this team went through the course thinking, we're gonna create uh, a sensor that does synthetic aperture radar imagery from space and a, a CubeSat. We came out of the course realizing that they needed to be a data company that had access to synthetic aperture radar imagery data plus a bunch of other data that could solve some really nasty problems. But day after the course ended, they closed a uh, $200,000 seed round. They spent their summer, four guys, spent their summer essentially redoing the lean process, but now focused on the business model of Canvas. They closed a, uh, a $1.2 million seed round in August, literally two months later. They signed a $10 million contract with the National Reconnaissance Office in October, two months later. They closed a $12.6 million Series A round the following May. So. In less than a year coming out of the class, they'd already raised you know, somewhere around $25 million. Wow. Um, the first satellite went up the fall in December, like 18 months in. Uh, I think they're up to four satellites up right now. Wow. So that, that's on the high order end of, of what you're able to get out of. And I would say that a lot of that happened because um, the Defense Innovation Unit was highly involved. You know, both in the class and outside the class. You know, once those kids came out of the company, that the DIU took them on and helped broker the NRO contract. And the community that was built around them in the class actually stayed with them for a long time. Um, we literally, um, James Madison University, it's on the other end. Uh, there have been a couple of spinoff things like, you know, hacking for diplomacy, but uh, there was a team working an issue for NATO related to um, improving the speed at which uh, diplomatic decisions are made. And the team did so well that, that NATO actually flew that team to Croatia to a major conference last week. 
to actually present the findings to the entire conference of you know two, three, and four star generals. Um, so it, it's not just tech. In a lot of cases, we're finding is that everything that sounds like a tech problem also has a procedure, um, a programmatic, and, and in many cases, a legal issue attached to it. Sure. So there are all kinds of things that spit out of the class that are highly valuable added to, to different types of people. Is it, you know, the, the news what last year, um, the Project Maven news, and we don't need to get into that because it's sort of beyond the scope, I think, of this conversation. But uh, it strikes me, one of the things that kind of strikes me is that this is, you know, you gave the example of Capella. Um, they are, from their very beginnings, sort of tied in with um, the government as, as, a, as a potential customer. Um, is, that, is that sort of a model, do you think, for um, enhancing public-private partnership, particularly within the defense space? I think that, yeah, there are a lot of nuances there you have to understand. First, I would say that the Silicon Valley exists because of the defense industry. Right. Uh, yeah, Steve Blank sure. did a really great talk called The Secret History of the Silicon Valley. It you know, really points out that how in the 70s, all that work was really defense-related. Mm. Um, that has actually no bearing on the behavior of people in Silicon Valley today. Uh, what I would say is that Silicon Valley and largely the venture world has a business model that's focused on taking $1 and turning it into a billion dollars in three years or less. And they're not going to change that business model to work with anybody. They, they can't. So largely the pushback against defense and, and national security and those kinds of things that I see outside the what I would call the over- uh, over-publicized Google issues, some other things. But the reality is the government's way of engagement isn't conducive to that type of thinking. Until you get people to understand the value of dual-use investments. Uh, and so if you start with a problem and are able to boil that problem down to its most basic elements and then discover where that government problem might also exist in the commercial industry, if it's a big enough problem and the potential solution is big enough, then there are people who are willing to build companies that will pursue the solution to that. If, if you go through that process and then look at funding it, there's an opportunity to use what we would call non-dilutive capital from the government, which means money for contracts, to help those young companies um, learn what the product should be by doing um, product development and actually learn the channel that it might be delivered on. And, and quite frankly, R&D for companies is what, is what burns their cash fast. It causes them to disappear because they run out of equity to give away for cash that, that they would need to actually build a bigger company later. So it's really a, it's a lot about calculus. And if you can figure out how to use the government's money that doesn't affect the company's equity, that will help the company discover what product they're supposed to deliver, they are then much more attractive to the venture community who sees the ability, if it's a dual-use problem, sees the ability to use their money to build a bigger company. Mm -hmm. That all makes sense to you? It does, yeah, yeah. And, um, I, you know, I haven't actually heard it put that way before, and I think that that's really useful, and I'm sure listeners will find it kind of a useful way to frame it as well. I wonder if... Um, you know, I think most people who have who know a little bit about Silicon Valley and the culture of it and 
and know a little bit about DOD and the culture of it, um, would immediately think there's got to be some um, cultural frictions there. Um, and, and in many ways, I guess what you've described hacking for defenses is a way to sort of um, smooth out some of those frictions. But I wonder if, if, if that's, if there have been challenges that you've confronted that have been particularly thorny or difficult to overcome that might be cultural or otherwise. I, I think the, the first is, you know, the government tends to, to start talking after a requirement is written for something. And culturally, that makes no sense in Silicon Valley. Because the uh -huh. folks deal with the problem, and, and if they ever wrote a requirement, it would be the last thing they did right before they wrote a big check. Everything else up to that point is a matter of discovery. So I, I think if there's, if there's anything that I would say is a cultural issue, it's not the acquisition system as much as it is the requirement system. And, and kind of the way it, it, it works is, is if you show up in Silicon Valley, and, and we kind of call it tech tourism, the, the folks will come out here all the time and they'll go look at you know the big five companies and they'll look at tech and other things, and then they'll say, well, um, we have an RFP out with, with a bunch of requirements and stuff that they meet, and you, know, you can submit to, to have us look at your product through this RFP. And of course, the, the RFP makes no sense to anybody in the commercial world. But in many cases, it's like, yeah, we're beyond that. Or your RFP is asking for stuff that's older than what we're already doing. We're already way ahead of that. We're not going to back up for you. They just can't. So you, you really have to uh, approach it from the sense of, of what can I do to get my problem and my understanding moving at the speed of Silicon Valley and other places, and then what rules am I going to change inside the government that will allow some free plan, some discovery before we get to the point that we say, okay, we have a requirement. I think we've got a backwards. Like, I think the requirement really needs to move to the tail end. And, and everything before that is, is get us to, you know, get us to the right answer. How big can, uh, you know, I guess put it, to put it in, in Silicon Valley terms, when you think about scaling upward, how, how big can hacking for defense be or how, how, you know, how expansive can this model be? How expansively can it be applied? I, I think that you hit on it earlier. I, I think, um, you know, if anything, it is the flow of problems that determines how big hacking for defense will be. And I, I think, and that's just in the defense realm. So we, we work hard to ensure there are enough problems out to the universities. Uh, I think that at, at the rate we're going, you know, it's double in size every year. Uh, Congress has dedicated funds to hacking for defense through the Pentagon. Uh, we think it will end up in the president's budget request this year for 2020. So the funding is there, which is always the, the problem of growth. But the real growth in this case is, can we keep generating enough um, fresh problems and people to keep this going? Because it, it is intensive. It, it's, you know, Stanford students will tell you it's the hardest class I've ever taken. Really? Problem sponsors will tell you I can only do one at a time. It's consuming. Uh, and, and rightfully it ought to be. So I, I think there's there's a little bit there, right? You know, our goal going out was to eventually get it into 50 universities. We really want to see it in the major research universities that are seeing lots of DOD research dollars. We want to see those researchers better connected to the hacking for defense programs so that they can bear the fruit of, of their efforts and, and potentially transition 
a lot of that research out faster. Um, at the same time, the other type of growth that we we're seeing is there are lots of other sectors that have the same issue. For instance, we partnered with the Eric and Wendy Schmidt Future Foundation to pilot what we call hacking for local and get a new name someday. But we've essentially done the same thing with the city of Oakland and uh, University of California, Berkeley. And we're taking the city of Oakland as problem owners and they're generating problems that are going into a similar class where students are working those problems with the city. You know, it's everything from homelessness to management of, of recreation and parks to um, water issues to, to all kinds of things. Um, that class will probably also expand to a program that I think we'll probably call um, civic entrepreneurship or something like that. But but there are already a dozen universities that have asked uh, if they could run that fit same class. So I, I think it expands that way. Um, Hacking for Defense is already uh, expanding internationally. You know, we launched the program in Australia uh, two years ago this spring. We launched it in the UK two weeks ago. You know, it'll be taught um, first by King's College London and then by Imperial College. And I think there are three or four other colleges that are going to take it on. Uh, and now we're talking to the Norwegian military about it. So it, it expands in a lot of different directions. So if, if there are listeners, um, for, well, first of all, you said, you know, you need to keep generating the problems and you also need the people to be involved. If there are listeners that might be at one of these, I think you said 23 universities in the U.S. or even one of the international universities, um, if people want to get involved or just learn more about it, where would they start? I would start with uh, the Hacking for Defense um, Incorporated website. It's uh, www h4di.org and, and if you go to that website you'll actually see all the universities that are actually um, actively teaching right now and if you drill into the universities you can actually see the teaching teams the problems and, and everything that's going on that's all on the website that's all on the website okay uh, there's a contact us thing if you hit contact us um, either alex gallo the executive director for the nonprofit, or matt reynolds the the director for university program and personally answer every one of those queries uh, about things uh, for your listeners that are up there at west point uh, i know that we're working with the center for leadership to pilot uh, hacking for defense class at uh, west point in august uh, and i think we were already heard from a couple of other instructors up there so so there's there's some discussion uh, about uh, the Hacking Improvement Platform of the Military Academy. Uh, the Air Force Academy taught a class this past fall, and the uh, National Defense University is teaching one right now. So it, it, within the service schools, we're starting to see you know, more, more opportunity for uh, entrepreneurial learning inside the national security programs. Well, I will say that, you know, there, um, you know at the Modern War Institute, we... Um, we're pretty pretty well, I think, tapped into the kind of O three to O six, um, you know, in the officer ranks, professional ranks, um, and and there's certainly a movement afoot uh, of people that are more interested in sort of 
um, I guess innovation and finding unique challenges to some pretty difficult problems. And I will, you know, it's been what four, four and a half years now since you've launched hacking for defense is, is a thing that people have heard of, but I really appreciate you taking some time because I think listeners will, um, have a much better understanding of what it is and, and, and perhaps we'll want to, we'll want to get involved in the future. No, absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity to, to talk about it. I think if I got my vote, this would be an intramural sport in the army and the yeah. services. Yeah, that would be that would be fantastic. Well, Pete, thank you very much for joining us. Awesome. Thank you. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing, if you're enjoying the podcast, we would love it if you could take just a second and leave a rating or give us a review at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's a great way you can help us reach new listeners interested in the types of topics we feature on the podcast. Thanks again.